Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, okay, today we're gonna look at uh, Marty's uh, epic Casino. If you haven't seen Casino, um, I personally think you're really missing out. It's one of my personal favorites of Marty and I think everyone needs to see it. It's, um, it's, it's a story about two men specifically who squander away the entire mafia empire in Las Vegas. It's based on a true story. Um, it reminds a lot of people of Goodfellas, which is why it gets knocked a lot because even I have to admit that I think Goodfellas is a better film. Um, I, it, you know, I think Casino's great. And even Marty admits it, it is kind of an extension of Goodfellas. You know, it, it is another mafia movie. It's more about the life than a particular story. Um, it has that documentary feel. It uses extensive voiceover. It stars De Niro and Joe Pesci again. And it is based on a book by Nicholas Pileggi that is based on actual interviews that he did. But the thing about Casino is, is it differs largely in scale to Goodfellas. Goodfellas is fairly contained within, I think it's Queens, is where, is where uh, that particular crew was. But Casino... Casino is a story of excess. It's a story of greed. And that's what attracted Marty to the story was this huge, over-the-top world of Las Vegas. This kind of place of no limits. In fact, in an interview he did on the Charlie Rose show, Marty told Charlie, or Marty, Marty told Rose that, that it, he looked at it as kind of like an urban western. Uh, particularly about the end of this specific wild, wild west where where things went from you can do anything you want to we're going to crack down on this. And that Casino, in his mind, had to be a three-hour film. It had to be this big, grand epic of a movie. He wanted the movie to like blow across the screen, almost like a fireworks show, which I think is the reason that he, he hired uh, Robert Richardson as his director of photography, because Bob, Bob Richardson has this excessive kind of ultra cinematic, uh, look to all of his movies. He, he doesn't seem to matter where you go. You can tell if a movie is a Bob Richardson shot film. It, it just has that feel to it. Um, the way he lights largely, his lighting is so, excessive in in points and is so strong and striking um robert richardson has worked on film films like wag the dog uh a few good men casino as i just mentioned he did hugo with marty he's done a few movies with marty now um i want to say he did shutter island and um he's worked with tarantino ever since kill bill so kill bill volumes one and two uh, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, um, Inglorious Bastards. He just has this, this way of lighting that makes things feel big and makes things feel over the top. 
Um, you know, and then of course this movie is shot super 35 anamorphic. So it's, it's, it's in that two, three, five anamorphic ratio, which Marty says, which, which Marty really liked because it gave it the sense of being a, a spectacle, almost like a Las Vegas show in and of itself. Um, you know, there's these phenomenal over the top Saul Bass titles in front of it. Saul Bass did the titles for Cape Fear and it did the titles for Age of Innocence and, you may remember from previous season, he was the one who did the titles for Vertigo and for Psycho uh, and North by Northwest. Um, but it's 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 during those opening titles that that maybe one of the more interesting musical choices comes in from Marty, because most of the music is driven by the period. But in the opening titles, we hear Bach. I believe the music is entitled St. Matthew Passion, which typically is a a a song reserved for church for christian activities and this is the exact opposite of that but marty liked it because it gave you a sense of grandeur it gave you a sense of an empire being lost and marty felt that it it could still be appropriate in this setting because even though it's even though these aren't necessarily good people you know, they had their paradise. You know, they had their sinner's paradise here in Las Vegas. And 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 so why, you know, why can't I use uh, St. Matthew Passion? And that idea of these, these being not good people brings us to something really important that you hear a lot when Marty talks about this film. See, the, the point for Marty was to try to present not monsters but to present people real human beings even though they weren't good people necessarily they were still people and he 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 really wanted to present that and 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 that's part of the reason that that he wanted to present the people in casino as people so he says in Scorsese on Scorsese, even though you may not like the people and what they did, they're still human beings. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a tragedy. And you can kind of begin to understand his perspective when you begin to understand how he was raised and how he came up. He says again in Scorsese on Scorsese, when I was growing up, I was around many of these men, and most of them were very nice. They treated me and my family well, and they were attractive. I knew they were tough, and some were tough, tougher than others. But it's a matter of the hypocrisy that those who condemn others often turn out to be twice as corrupt. You see, because of the way Marty grew up, he, he quickly began to understand that, that it's easy to pick on the people that everyone knows are supposed to be bad. But it's the people behind the curtain, the people that you don't necessarily see, and they're often the first one to point the finger at at the ones that everybody knows are the corrupt, the, the sinners, the what have you. And there's something wrong about that because these men, even though Marty began to understand later in life, how they made a living, they never did anything to him. You know, in fact, he says, uh, he says in another book, conversations with Scorsese, he says, I always said, I just knew the person on the street corner who was, you know, who had just robbed a carton of cigarettes and was selling them to someone else. I can never imagine the Corleones. I couldn't even imagine the Sopranos living in a big house in New Jersey. 
the men I knew, they lived in apartments, in tenements. There were a few who had nicely appointed apartments. It was decent, it was nice, especially if they had families. But basically, it was very plain. Even if they lived in those tiny apartments, they were the bosses of the neighborhood. If there was ever a problem, they'd take care of it. They had a florist shop, somebody had a butcher shop. So they were part of the family in a way. So it wasn't that they were the men on the hill. It wasn't like they were separate from us, so they were all mixed together. There was one who had a house out in New Jersey, and I was friends with his son. And they would take us out there every now and then. It was so great to go to the country and to be in a swimming pool just for a day. And all these men were in this house talking, sitting at tables, making phone calls. See, Marty describes a, a, a life where these men were very powerful in the underworld, but they weren't separate from anyone else. They just lived among everybody else. And everybody knew if you had a problem, you could go to them and they could take care of it for you. But it was, you know, it's not the Godfather. And that's the thing that, that, that you also hear Marty talk about a lot. As much as he appreciates the Godfather as a film and as a story, that wasn't his experience with, with men who were connected. His experience was much more local. It was much more, you know, down to earth. You know, talking about talking about them taking him out to Jersey to their house out there, you know, to go swim in the pool. You know, um, and, and, and so it's because of, of Marty's experience that it was very important to him to try to present these people as people. And so there's a couple of ways that Marty tried to do that. And the biggest thing he did was he, he cast well. Um, my, my film school professor always told us that if you're a director, 80% of your job in terms of directing talent is in the casting. If you cast the right person, most of the work is done right there. Well, Marty intentionally cast, cast people that he could trust and people that he knew would bring a certain human element to the characters. So, for example, Bob De Niro... Marty told Charlie Rose in his interview that he feels that Bob likes to play characters that in any other script would be a villain. But in Marty's script, they're usually the protagonist. And that Bob can give them a level of sympathy or of empathy so that the audience can connect with them. And that he plays them with so much compassion that there's no one he ever plays who isn't unredeemable. There's no one who, who who he plays that can't be, you know, redeemed in the audience's minds. There's always there's always this level of humanity to the role that Bob brings as an actor. And obviously that's very important if you're trying to present real people to an audience that are doing things that most of us would consider wrong, unethical, even despicable. And, but Bob's character is nothing compared to Joe Pesci's character. Joe Pesci's character is, um, I don't know if he's a sociopath, but he's, he, he's a very violent man, a very impulsive person, and the kind of person who just does what he wants to do at any given minute. There's a scene in the movie where Joe Pesci is torturing a man to get information out of him about about a hit that was recently committed against the family he's connected with. And in order, like as a last ditch effort, he puts the man's head in a vice and squeezes the vice down so hard that his eye starts to pop out. 
the character that Joe Pesci is playing actually did that to somebody. That's real. That happened. And so because it actually happened, that's an important thing that Marty, Marty and Nicholas Pileggi felt should be in the film. And obviously Joe felt it should be in the film. Bobby felt it should be in the film. Everybody thought, yeah, this needs to be in the movie because we're trying to present these people as they were. But you have to find a way to play that in a way so that the audience can actually stomach it and is actually maybe not going to be on board with the character, but might kind of be able to understand why someone would put someone's head in a vice and begin to squeeze it so down that their eye pops out. And Pesci found a way to do that. What Joe did is he played it as a soldier who was just following orders. He's like, he says things like, please don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to do this. You know, that kind of a thing. And that becomes crucial. That becomes incredibly important for you to kind of understand the character. And even though that's a really terrible thing to do to somebody, it, it somehow it doesn't come across as sociopathic or, or psychotic. There's another scene with Marty's mother. Catherine, I believe was her name, Catherine Scorsese. She's in a number of Marty's films. In this one in particular, she's playing the elderly mother of one of these, I think he's an underboss, um, anyway, of one of these Midwest, you know, top-level mafia guys. And he's just ranting and raving about everything that's going on in Las Vegas, and he continuously is swearing, dropping F-bombs left and right, in fact, I think this movie set the record for F-bombs in a feature film um, at the time. It was later broken by Scorsese in The Wolf of Wall Street, but that's not important. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and this scene has something to do with setting that record is, is just F-bombs left and right. And, you know, Catherine Scorsese was used to used to be in a movie she has that great scene in in Goodfellas with Joe and Ray and Bob and so when she gets to set Marty doesn't give her a script he doesn't really give her even lines he just tells her just react to what this actor is going to do knowing full well that she did not she was not comfortable with swearing so when this guy goes off she just reacted to him and she said hey you know you know, she'd get in there in that old, you know, in that elderly way and, you know, that that grandmotherly way and, you know, try to get him to stop swearing. And, you know, they just rolled continuously. And uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor, um, says that it was actually incredibly difficult to even try to choose which reaction to take from. See, but that's all casting. Marty knew that his mother, Catherine, would do exactly what that scene needed to bring a humanity to the scene. And it's, it's, it's all these casting decisions that make, make the characters of Casino empathetic, maybe not likable, but empathetic. There's, there's, a, there's a way for the audience to kind of understand them at least. You know, and then on top of that, he used the real dealers. He used real pit bosses, people. He was constantly surrounded by people on the set and, and, and in some cases, other people who were on the screen who were there, who knew the people that Marty 
and Bob and Joe and all these actors were trying to portray. They actually knew a lot of the men involved. In fact, there's many court scenes and Senate hearings and things like that. Bob and Joe are being represented by this defense attorney. And that attorney was the real defense attorney of the characters, Frank, uh, Frank Lefty Rosenthal and Tony Spilatro, um, that Bob and Joe are playing. Um, there's another scene where Joe gets, Joe's in a, in, in the casino and is, is, is very upset and is playing blackjack and he's really pissed. And he gets very upset at the dealer and he's like throwing cards at him and, and, and the dealer in that scene is the real dealer who dealt with, with Joe's character in real life a number of times, at least, or at least once uh, in a similar situation and was able to come up to Marty and say, you know, actually the real guy was a lot rougher than even Joe's being right now. Um, and so they, they had ways be, because of who Marty brought into the production, they had ways of bringing reality, but more importantly, a real human level to the story. And one of the last things that Marty does, and he did the same thing in Goodfellas, was he included voiceover, extensive voiceover. And Marty's thing, as he says in Scorsese on Scorsese, is there's something interesting about voiceover. It lets you in on the secret thoughts of the characters. It's like secret observations from an omniscient viewer. And for me, it has the wonderful comforting tone of someone telling you a story. And that's the final act the, the, the final element to bring this humanity to these characters because being a visual medium, you get to see what they do, but you're not always let in on their thoughts. And sometimes you can play the thoughts with the actions off of each other in a way to reveal more about the characters and reveal more about these people and make them more and more human. So that's all I have for Casino. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. If you want to reach out to the podcast uh, with any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, whatever it may be, uh, you can email us at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page just called Hitchcock University. Uh, there's the Twitter page, hitch underscore you, as in university. I want to thank you all for listening wherever it is you get your podcast, whether that's SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, or whatever they call it these days. Um, thank you again for listening. Um, I'll be back again in two weeks with Kundun, and then we'll do Gains of New York, which I'm sure a lot of you are excited about, and then we will cover The Aviator. Um, so yeah, thanks again for listening. Um, talk to you again in two weeks. This has been Hitchcock University. I am Taylor Bickle. Thanks again.